So apart from salvation, there was probably no other greater gift that God ever gave his people throughout history than a revelation of himself, who he was, his character, so that we could know him. Our God is powerful enough. Our God would have been just. He would have been completely within his rights to have created all of this and just left it spinning and never have revealed himself to us. He never had to send his son. He never had to give us the word of God. He never had to move on the earth. But our God, in his grace and his love for us, was willing to come and just reveal himself to us. He does it all over the Old Testament. And we've seen this. We've been looking at this for the last couple of weeks. Remember in Exodus 3, when God speaks to Moses, and he says, Moses, tell my people, here's my name. If they want to know who I am, they want to know more about me, they want to know who sent you to free them, you tell them that Yahweh sent you. You tell them that the I am sent you. You tell them that the one who is, the one who has always been, the one who will continue to be, the one whose character doesn't change, the one whose power doesn't diminish, the one whose plan stands forever, the one who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. You tell them the I am has sent you. You tell your people that the I am knows them and loves them and cares for them. And Israel treasured that. They treasured that not just for the freedom that Yahweh brought to them. They treasured that relationship that he would reveal himself to them. They loved that name. They treasured that name. They hallowed that name. They made careful to be, they were careful not to take it in vain, not to misuse it in any way. So when a prophet comes along and he begins to teach people about God, they've never, things they'd never heard before. And he began to do miracles they've never seen before. And he began to say to them, this is what your God is like. And then he took it a step further. And he said things like John chapter 8, verse 58, where he said, Very truly I tell you, before Abraham was born, before your ancestor was born, before the one that you trace all of this back to, before Abraham was born, I am. It rattled them. Because they knew what I am meant. And they knew this man, this prophet, this teacher was saying, I'm one with I am. So when he built on that and he said things like this, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. They started to say to themselves, okay, well, there's, there's just something to this. Or when John chapter 9 verse 5, he said, while I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. I am the light of the world or john chapter 10 9 and 10 where he said i'm the gate whoever enters through me will come in and go out and find pasture the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy but i've come so that they may have life and have it to the full or later the same chapter john 10 14 and 15 he said i'm the good shepherd i know my sheep and my sheep know me just as i know my father and my father knows me and i lay down my life for the sheep or when he stood at the grave of one of his best friends and he looks his sister in the eye and jesus said to her i'm the resurrection and the life whoever believes in me will live even though he dies and whoever lives and believes in me will never die do you believe this and perhaps the biggest challenge of all we looked at last week when in john chapter 14 verse 6 jesus answered thomas and he said I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And no one comes to the Father 
except through me. Every single time Jesus said, I am, it was a challenge to their world. It was a challenge to what they believed. It was a challenge to how they lived. And he called them to reorient their life from what they had been living in to what he was calling them to walk into because he was the reality that was breaking in for them. And it would only be culminated on the cross. And so this morning, we're going to look at the seventh statement that Jesus made about himself, that seventh I am statement where he will talk about being the vine. So I want to ask you to open your Bibles to John chapter 15. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, why don't you grab one of the blue Bibles in the pews and you can follow along with me. In the blue Bible, John 15 is on page 1676. You can flip there. This declaration takes place at the same time that John 14 did last week. This is the night before the crucifixion. Jesus know what's, knows what's coming in just a matter of hours. He is communicating the things to his disciples that he wants them to understand more than anything else. The things that are going to nourish them and comfort them and help them stay close to him. Even though he knows he's about to die just a few hours later. He knows that they're not going to understand. He knows he's going to be buried in that grave for three days. That They're going to be confused. They're going to wonder if this was all for nothing. And he knows the resurrection's coming, but he knows they're going to struggle. So he's communicating the things to them. They have to know. And if you go back and read these passages on your own, the most beautiful thing he teaches in all of this, John 13 through 17, is the person of the Holy Spirit. What the Holy Spirit is going to come and teach these men and be with them, how he's going to comfort them in his absence. Because he's preparing them for what's going to come, not only with his resurrection, but his ascension. So with all that in mind, I want us to pick back up in John chapter 15. And we're going to read verses 1 through 6 tonight. I want you to listen to Jesus' final claim about himself that we have to challenge ourselves with and we have to orient our lives to. John chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. And those two verses are going to be your memory verses for the week. I know in your bulletin it says John 15, 5, but I'm changing it. I can do that because I'm the preacher. I can do that. John chapter 15, verse 1 and 2. I want to challenge you to hide this verse away in your heart. Because again, why are we challenging to memorize Scripture? Not just because Scripture is powerful on its own, which is reason enough. It's reason enough. But because in the dark times of our life, when we're challenged by this world and when the enemy is speaking into us, what I hope that these verses become are these touch points for us, that they well up in us and they remind us of what Jesus said about himself. So when we're confused and we need a shepherd, we are remembering that he's the good shepherd. And when we're confused and need a way, we remember that he's the way, he's the truth, he's the life. And so I want to challenge you, salt these two away this morning but as he said i am the true vine and my father is the gardener did you catch that the true vine not just the vine the true vine probably building on what he's just said in 14 6 that i'm the truth meaning there are other ways for you to nourish yourself but i am the true vine and my father is the gardener do you see that that 
cool little pairing of how they minister together in the kingdom of God, how they minister to us together, Father and Son. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. Now, they would have understood this so much better than we do because they were agrarian culture. And even the poorest folks in Israel, most of them would have had their own grapevine. They would have had it growing in their backyard. They would have eaten grapes off of it. They would have made wine from it. It was a huge part of Israelite life. Not only that, it was central to their culture. Everyone drank wine very frequently because it was really a form of medicine for them. That alcohol really helped them deal with parasites and diseases as part of their diet. They really didn't know that, but we know that now. And Jesus and God the Father knew that. That's why he gave all that to them then. But not just that, it was part of their religious worship. It was part of the cycle of worshiping at the temple. They were poured out on different offerings and things like that. It was just part of their ritual routine. Grapes and vines and wine, all of that was such a part of their life. So when Jesus said, I'm the true vine, they had a picture. They knew what was growing in their backyard. They knew it was all over Israel. They had a picture. And he says, my father's the gardener. They knew what it was like to go out and needing different times of the year to go and prune that vine so that next year they had more grapes than they had last year. They knew what that was like. They knew the responsibility of doing that and owning a vine and doing those things. And look at what he says to his disciples in verse 3. You're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. And neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me, I'll and I in you, you will bear much fruit. And apart from me, you can do nothing. I'd encourage you to take your pen and underline the second half of verse 5 because some of us haven't figured that part out yet, that apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. And so he's a really gracious God. He'll just let you keep doing what you think you can do, and he'll let it keep falling apart. He really will. I mean, he'll let you head down whatever path you want to take without his advice and without his counsel, without seeking his power and his empowerment. And he'll just let it dead end just like it, it keeps doing. And you're saying to yourself, man, I don't understand. I've got an education. I work hard. I've got money. I've got influence. I've got friends. And I just, I just keep running into all these walls. I just want to challenge you. It may be because you're walking a path without Jesus. Maybe you're not consulting him about your workplace. Maybe you're not consulting him about how to use your money. Maybe you're not consulting him about what your time should be like. Because Jesus says, apart from you, you can do a few things. That's not what he said. He didn't say, apart from him, you can do a few things. He said, apart from him, you can do nothing. Nothing. And I tell you, you don't want him to keep taking you around that mountain. He'll do it. He'll take you around the mountain. Just learn. Listen. In Jesus, we can do everything. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. We can do nothing. So down into verse 6, he says, If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that is thrown away and withers. And such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. Man, Pastor Matt, boy, you're really preaching those encouraging verses this morning. Because as I look at verse 6, it looks like what you're saying here is, if I don't remain in Jesus, I, I've, been, I've been 
pursuing the Lord. I, I've been bearing fruit. I've been growing. But there could come a time where I, I stopped doing that. I stopped remaining in him. I, I stopped bearing fruit. And it looks like if that did that long enough that, that Jesus would cut me away. Is that what you're saying this morning? I mean, that's not a very encouraging word here this morning, Pastor Matt. I don't think that's what that means. And I think it's because we've misunderstood the context of what's happening here. So what I want you to do is I want you to take a few notes. You got them in your bulletin. I want to make sure you understand what Jesus is saying. And I want you to see how it plays out because context is so important when we study Scripture. The, the setting in which it takes place, the words that are used, what's come before, what comes after, is so important for us to understand the Word of God correctly. And this is one of those. You've got to have the context. You ready? So three things I want to make sure you see in this before we go further, and then I want to show you why the context matters. The first thing is this. The gardener prunes and he cuts away. The father is the gardener. He does both. He both prunes and he cuts away. That's his prerogative. He prunes and he cuts away. The second thing I want you to see is this. The way the branches relate to the vine... The way the branches relate to the vine determines which takes place. Whether or not we will be pruned or whether or not we will be cut away. It's about how we have related to the vine. And the vine is Jesus. The vine is Jesus. And the third point I want to make, and then I'm going to build and explain it to you, is this. The example of Judas is the key to understanding who will be cut away. The example of Judas. Now, Pastor Matt, but Judas hasn't shown up in the story. Oh, yes, he has. We just don't have time. I didn't have time to start in chapter 13 and read all of 13 and 14 and into 15. Praise the Lord, right? I mean, you were thinking, I could have done that. I could have done that. But Judas has just left the scene. And I want you to understand how Judas Iscariot helps us understand what Jesus is talking about here. So if we can, I want to go back in some verses, and I want to look at John's history with Judas and what he observed about Judas and how the Holy Spirit moved on him to record these things for us because it's so key to understand what it means to be pruned and what it means to be cut away. So I want you to turn to the left in your Bible, just a few pages, to John chapter 6. This is earlier in Jesus' ministry. It's on page 1659. Jesus has come on the scene, he's traveling, he's teaching, and thousands of people are following Jesus. They love it. They love the miracles. They love the teaching. They never heard anybody stand up to the religious leaders like Jesus did. And boy, they're all in. Thousands of people are following him. And he notices that, so he does this funny thing. In chapter 6, he starts preaching it harder. Like he starts preaching harder words and saying more confusing things. And things that would offend them even more. Isn't that the complete opposite of how we approach things now? I mean, when we start to draw a crowd, we want to say things that are easier to hear. We want to make the music louder or have better video or whatever. Jesus just preached it harder. Preached it harder. And so you get to the end of chapter 6, and it says this, that Jesus said some things that were so offensive to that crowd. It said, most of them turned away and never followed him again. Thousands of people, hundreds of people were like, you know what, I'm out. I, 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 mis, I misunderstood that, that he wasn't what I, uh, what I signed up for. And you know, Jesus in his security didn't care at all. He didn't care at all. I'll be honest with you, uh, that's not your pastor. 
if I, I preached a sermon this morning, and we have about, about 200 people in here, and I showed up next Sunday morning, and there was 13 of you, I would be a little shaken. I'd be a little shaken. In fact, I'd probably be tempted to apologize about whatever I talked about this past week. I promise you. And Jesus wasn't like that. So hundreds and thousands of people walk away from him and listen to what he says. He turns to the 12 who stayed, his apostles, his disciples. He turns to the 12 who stayed. Look at what he says. Do you want to leave too? Hey, listen, the door's still open. You got hundreds of people leaving. You want to leave too? I'm fine. And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and know that you're the Holy One of God. Meaning, listen, I don't understand. I have no idea what you've just been talking about. I don't know what you mean by, if you read chapter 6, what it means to eat your, your flesh and drink your blood. I don't know what that means. But here's what I do know. With you, I am more alive than I was when I was without you. And when you speak, I am filled with life again. And I've come to know and believe that you're the Holy One of God. Where am I going to go? Where am I going to go? And so Jesus says, verse 79, And Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. And John just wants to make sure we knew who the devil was. You ready? Little parentheses. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. Isn't that amazing that at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, all the disciples bail. He says, listen, have I not chosen you, the twelve? Have I not chosen you? Listen, but one of you is a devil. Now, the one that was the devil, I think, knew who the devil was. The other eleven were like, man, what's he talking about? What's he talking about? Flip to chapter 12, just a few pages to the right. Let's build on that idea. Jesus knew Judas's character right from the beginning. Now John chapter 12, this is the follow-up to the funeral of Lazarus and his resuscitation from the dead. We looked at a couple weeks ago, right? Jesus is back in Mary and Martha's house with Lazarus. She is so appreciative and gracious for what Jesus does. Mary takes a vial of perfume and she breaks it and she pours it on Jesus' feet as, a, as just gratitude for raising her brother from the dead. So you know the, the room just fills with the smell. We talked about this a couple weeks ago further back, how those vials of perfume were just really valuable. A lot of times they were almost like a 401k account for women back in the day. That was one of the only ways they could really save money was to purchase these things. And they would save it maybe for their husband or maybe down the road to sell later to cover them once they couldn't work anymore. And she takes it and she breaks it and she pours it on Jesus' feet out of gratitude. Right? But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this money, this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It's worth a year's wages. And John makes sure we know what he was thinking again. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. 
I have promised you, I know Jesus knew what was happening. I promise you. He knew that Judas was stealing from that bag. And this is the grace of Jesus. Because Jesus does not hesitate to say hard things to people anytime. And it was only by the grace of Jesus that he didn't look at Judas and say, shut your mouth. You don't want the money to help the poor. You want the money so you can steal it in a week and a half. Let's be honest, Judas. You're not trying to honor the Lord. You're trying to line your pockets. But Jesus in his grace didn't say that. Instead, he says, leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You'll always have the poor among you, but you'll not always have me. So now we're building. Jesus knows Judas's character from the beginning, and he knows his actions. You see, his actions are reflecting that character. Are you with me? Now, I want you to flip probably just one page to the right, John 13. Jesus gathers with his disciples for the Passover. And he is going to celebrate this final meal with them the night before he's crucified. And Judas, get this, Judas is in the room. He's in the room. John chapter 13, verse 1 and 2. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave the world and to go to the Father. And having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Iscariot, to betray Jesus. So now the Holy Spirit through John is giving us another insight into Judas. That Judas, in his character, was a man that was at least susceptible to the temptation of Satan himself. Are you following that? That when Satan wanted to attack Jesus in his inner circle. He didn't go after one of the other 11. Who did he go after? He went after Judas. Now, however you believe about demon possession or temptation or whatever else it is, this is what we do know. Judas was susceptible to what Satan was doing on that night. Are you with me? Now, that plays out. Go all the way down to verse 14. And look at what he says. Look what takes place. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, by the way, Jesus washes all of their feet, including Judas. Including Judas. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set an example that you should do as I've done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. So Jesus lays this foundation of servanthood, and I want to make sure we get the full picture. The full picture of servanthood is not just washing the defeat of the, the feet of the 11 who loved and followed Jesus. He washed the foot of the one he knew was a devil, knew stole his money, knew was going to betray him in a matter of minutes, and he washed his feet anyway. That's Jesus. Listen, that's Jesus. I'm not referring to all of you. I know those whom I've chosen. But this is to fulfill the passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. And I'm telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you'll believe that I am who I am. Very truly, I tell you, 
Whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. And after he said this, Jesus was very troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. And his disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. And one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John who wrote the gospel, by the way. You can find that other places. He was reclining next to him. And Simon Peter motioned to that disciple and said, ask him which one he means. And leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it's the one to whom I give this piece of bread when I've dipped it in the dish. And then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you're about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. So Judas had charge of the money, and some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. And as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. And it was night. I want you to catch this. This is the context. This is important. Nobody in that room knew what was happening between Judas and Jesus, except for Judas and Jesus. The others were like, I wonder what Jesus is sending him to do. I mean, maybe go give something to the poor. Maybe we have the festival tomorrow. Maybe you buy some supplies. Nobody understood except Judas and Jesus. But Judas leaves the disciples, and he never returns. And very shortly after that, he betrays Jesus to death. He leads a garrison of soldiers to where Jesus was on the Mount of Olives. They arrest him, and Jesus is put on trial. Within a matter of hours, he is crucified. Judas leads that charge. Now, I want to go back to John 15. Because John 13 was just a few minutes before. You with me? Now John 15. Now let's read what Jesus says here. John 15, and we just want to do one through three. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean, because of the word I have spoken to you. Make a note in your Bible or in your bulletin. You need to understand this. The word for clean. Do you see the word clean in verse 3? In the original language that this is written in. We read it in English. But it was an ancient form of Greek when it was originally written. And the word for clean is the same word for the word prune. It's the same word. So you could use prune. You could use clean. But... You get why that works, because what are you doing when you're pruning a vine? You're cleaning it, right? You clean it from all the dead stuff, all the extraneous pieces, right? And watch what he says. You've got to get this. He says to the disciples, those who do not bear fruit, I will cut away. Those who remain, the ones who remain, will be pruned. You are already pruned, because of the word I have spoken to you. So now we're starting to understand what he's saying. 
there were 11 of the disciples that had already been pruned by his word to them. And what were they doing? They were remaining with Jesus. But he said, those who do not bear fruit, who do not remain, I will cut away. Who's he talking about? Judas. Judas is the understanding of what it means to be cut away. The disciples are the ones who remained and were pruned. Judas is the one who did not bear fruit and was cut away. So if we've looked at the life of Judas, here's the challenge for us. Here's the challenge for everyone under my voice. Listen to me. We have to take warning from the life of Judas. Because this is what we know about Judas. Judas, on the outside, looked like every other one of the eleven for the vast majority of Jesus' ministry. For the crowds that followed Jesus, they would have seen the twelve, and you know what they have noticed? They would have noticed Judas just like they noticed Peter or John or anyone else. They wouldn't have seen a single difference. Judas heard the teaching. He saw the miracles. I promise you, when they were distributing uh, bread and fish and feeding the 5,000, guess who was handing out bread and fish? It was Judas. He looked just like the other disciples. Not just that. He had a front row seat to Jesus. He saw the miracles. He saw the teaching. He saw things the rest of the crowds didn't see. But he never bought Jesus. He didn't believe. From the beginning, there was something in him that didn't resonate. He did not believe in Jesus. And the proof was... When the chips were down, when it got tight, when Jesus wouldn't fulfill for Judas what he wanted Jesus to fulfill, what did he do? He bailed, and he betrayed him. He bailed, and he betrayed him because he never believed. There was no fruit in his life. He never believed. That is what it means to not remain in Jesus. To have never made him the sinner, to have never made him the source of your life, to have never made him the motivation of your life. We don't know why Judas decided it was a good idea to follow Jesus. We have no idea. We don't know if he was in it for the money. I mean, obviously he stole from Jesus from time to time. Maybe he's just a greedy guy and he thought, this, hey, this train's come to town. Maybe this is a good way to, to line my pockets a little bit. There's evidence that Judas thought Jesus was going to be a powerful ruler that was going to overthrow Rome. And when Jesus decided, or when he became clear that Jesus was not going to do that, that's what ticked Judas off and he betrayed him. Some even believe, some think, that the reason Judas betrayed him in the first place was to force his hand so if he had a confrontation with Rome, if he was going to overthrow Rome, then that would be the time it would force Jesus' hand. It didn't go that way, though. It didn't go that way. He never believed in Jesus. So here's our challenge. I just got to challenge us. Listen. It should challenge us because we show up in church Sunday after Sunday. We live in the South and we're associated with like Christian things. I know plenty of people that think they're a believer because they were born in South Carolina. I mean, it's a great state. I love living here. It'll make you a believer in Jesus. It'll make you a believer in Jesus. It may make you a Clemson fan or a USC fan or a Coastal Carolina fan. It doesn't make you a follower of Jesus, though. 
We have people that we, we delude ourselves. We, we show up on Sunday mornings, and we're here, and we're, you know, we're, we're here. But Jesus, he, he's not really part of my life. He doesn't change anything. He doesn't affect my actions. We show up on Sunday morning. Listen, I can show up at Mi Tierra this afternoon, and I can order a burrito. It doesn't make me a taco, though. I can, I can show up every day over there. It, it doesn't tra- the environment doesn't transform us into Christians. It, it doesn't. Listen, and I'm glad you're here. A lot of people haven't come back. I'm glad you're watching. I really am. But watching this broadcast doesn't make you a Christian either. I mean, praise God that you're here, but that doesn't make you a Christian. Here's what makes you a Christian. Belief in Jesus makes you a Christian. Belief that transforms our life makes us a Christian. Belief that causes us to reorient our life makes us a Christian. So I just want to leave you with a few thoughts. How can I make sure that I'm not someone who's going to be cut away, Pastor Matt? That's really the question that we got to answer this morning. Just three things. You ready? Number one, establish Jesus as the center of your life. Establish Jesus as the center of your life. Maybe if you're saying to yourself, maybe, I, I don't know, maybe... Maybe I don't believe in Jesus. Here's the, here's the challenge. You have to establish Jesus as the center of your life. He is the one for which everything in your life rotates around. The way we think, the way we live, the way we teach, the way we work, the way we count money tomorrow at McDonald's, whatever else it is. Listen, Jesus becomes the center of all that. We rotate around him. There are so many times that I think we live like Jesus should rotate around us. And when my life gets hard, Jesus, man, you need to step up. My, life, my life's hard. Hey, listen, this is a bad week, Jesus. I need you, man, listen, I need you to step up. Jesus doesn't revolve around your life. Listen, he doesn't revolve around your life. He's the center of all things. And by the way, he's the center whether you make him that or not. It, it's just part of being truth, right? Remember we talked about he is the truth? He's the center whether you allow him to be or not. But what we do is we align ourselves to him as the center. We have to establish Jesus as the center. Judas never did that. Pastor, how do, how do you know Judas never had Jesus at the center? Do you think you're going to steal Jesus' money, but he's the center of your life? No, I don't, I, don't, I don't think so. I don't think so. Number two, we have to relate to Jesus as the source of your life. We relate to Jesus as the source of our life. Isn't that a beautiful picture that Jesus gave us? I am the vine, you're the branches. If a man remains in me, he'll bear much fruit. We orient ourselves to Jesus as the source of our life. That means we start to say, the money in my bank account is not the source of my life anymore. Jesus is the source of my life. The girl that I'm dating is not the source of my life anymore. Jesus is the source of my life. This job that I have climbed the ladder to achieve in is not the source of my life anymore. Jesus is the source of my life. The way my body feels and the fact that I can do 100 burpees, and if you can, more power to you. If you can do 100 burpees, you can run five miles, you can do whatever. That's not the source of your life anymore. Jesus is the source of your life. As he is the vine and you are the branches. That's what we're called to. And number three, we have to resolve that Jesus will be the goal of your life. That Jesus will be the goal of your life. 
You know, I actually think that the other 11 disciples actually probably started out a little bit like Judas. They weren't actually sure what they were signing up for. I mean, when Jesus said, come follow me, they're like, okay. I think some of them followed Jesus because no one had ever invited them to follow them before. It made them feel important. They saw these miracles. They saw these crowds. They were like, oh, okay, it's a pretty good deal. I believe a lot of them started out misunderstanding Jesus. We've seen that over and over again, right? I mean, Jesus teaches something. They're like, what is he talking about? Peter, what is he talking about? John, what is he talking about? There was a misunderstanding there. They, but did you see back in chapter 6 what Peter said when he said the reason they couldn't walk away? What did he say? He said, we've come to know and believe that you're the Holy One of God. I don't, I don't know what you're doing, but listen, I do know this. You are who you say you are. I've experienced that. And I'm, I'm going to follow that. You've got to get this. Please hear me. It was not Judas's actions that cut him away. The other 11 are going to betray Jesus that night too. Are you with me? But the 11 weren't cut away. Why? Because their belief in Jesus sustained them through their confusion until three days later Jesus was resurrected from the dead and it propelled the rest of their life because Acts chapter 2 comes along and those 11 men literally turned the world upside down. The 10 of the 11 died a violent death all over the world. They were put to death by kings. They were thrown off towers they were stabbed with spears i mean they were put to death in the most brutal way and the only one john who wrote this gospel was not put to death brutally starved to death on an island he starved to death on an island after being boiled in oil and it didn't kill him i think that's pretty faithful for jesus right i mean that counts right why do 11 people radically transform their life and one walks away it was a belief. It wasn't a belief that was never shaken. It was a belief that was shaken, but they held. They held because they knew Jesus. He was their center. He was their source. And he was their goal. He was their goal. It was never that for Judas. I don't know you. I mean, I know a lot of you. I shake your hands. Some of you I've known for a long time. Some of you I literally met this morning. It's great to meet you. I'm Matt Walton. Great to meet you. Glad you're here. Some of you I've known for a few months. Some of you a few weeks. I don't know. Judas and Jesus were the only two that knew about Judas's heart. They're the only two. I can't know your heart, but I would tell you this. Belief in Jesus is all that matters. It's all that matters. Don't worry about your, your habits, your behavior, what you look like. I don't know enough about church or whatever else it is. It's okay. Jesus can take care of all that. But you have to decide what you're going to do with Jesus. You have to. You have to decide what you're going to do with Jesus. There are consequences. Our praise team is going to come. They're going to lead us in a final song. And this is a chance for us to respond. I mean, we've heard. We've been challenged today. We, it, it, it's wise of us to examine our life in light of what we've been charged with and challenged with. Do we know Jesus? Are we bearing fruit in the kingdom? Are we connected to him? Is he the center of our life? And if not... Here's a chance to establish that and begin to walk in that this morning. By the grace of God, God brought us here this morning and gave us that chance. Praise God.
Let's stand together. Let's respond to him in any way the Lord's leading us.